My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow with their communities. My name is Dr. Jacoby Miguel Wilson. I'd like to welcome you to the ninth um, Siege UMD Environmental Justice and Health Disparity Symposium. We have an exciting lineup for you, and I'm really excited to have our keynote speaker today as someone who is in the EJ movement, someone who's been a part of fighting for social justice. You have a lot of people out there who are the folks who make a way for a a younger generation, the folks who are leading the way as advocates, as those stalwarts of of social justice. And we have the day that opening keynote speaker, Reverend Dr. William Barber II. He is one of those people who I look up to as a younger person in the EJ movement, So I want to give a a little bit of background on his bio before I pass the mic. And he, again, is going to open us up on our thing, people, power, and politics. He's president and senior lecturer of Repairs of the Breach, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. He's bishop with the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, pastor Greenleaf Christian Church, a disciple of Christ in, in Goldsboro, North Carolina, for the past 29 years and professor in the practice of public theology and public policy and founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. He has authored several books, including We Are Called to Be a Movement, Revive Us Again, Vision and Action, More Organizing, The Third Reconstruction, Moral Mondays, Fusion Politics, and the Rise of a New uh, Justice Movement, and Forward Together, A Moral Message for the Nation. He served as president of the North Carolina NWCP for 2006 and 2017, and on the National NWC Board of Directors from 2008 to 2020. He is the architect of the Ford Together Moral Movement that gained national claim in 2013 with his Moral Monday protest at the North Carolina General Assembly. In 2015, he established Repairs of the Breach to train communities in moral movement building through the Moral Political Organizing Leadership Institute and summer trainings. He has given hundreds of keynotes, many addresses. And again, he's going to open us up today with address on people, power, and politics for the ninth Siege UMD Environmental Justice and Health Disparity Symposium. Again, the theme, people, power, and politics. Uh, Reverend Barber, you have the floor. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Wilson and for the work that this powerful center uh, has done. The more I read about it and hear about it, uh, it's exactly what was needed in this time. I want to welcome all of your guests virtually. I want to thank you for your prayers. You know, I've just recently come through surgery a couple of weeks ago, and and I'm happy to even be here uh, to be able to to join in with you on today. Uh, You know, I have a son who is deeply involved in environmental issues, William Bob III, and also a daughter who runs the center at Drexel University in public health. So uh, these issues are all around me. And of course, as a pastor, 
uh, I want to take your time uh, very seriously today uh, as, as I talk about this theme. And I want to do some things that hopefully set up uh, the rest of the week, you know, when we talk about people and we talk about power, we talk about politics. One of the greatest um, political questions, well, well, two of them actually, in the Bible, is right at the beginning in Genesis when the, the story suggests that God had given humankind the, the authority to care for the earth, not destroy it, but to care for it because it would to run balance. And humankind begins to listen to other forces and other things. And, and God asked this question, Adam, where are you? Where are you? You know, that's a, that's a political question. That's a power question. We have to ask that in this nation. Where are we? Where are we? Because oftentimes we get a lot of different aspects to tell us where we are. If you listen to some people, they'll tell us where we are is the fault of everything that exists, belongs to President Biden and, 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 and Vice President Harris. If you listen to others, they'll tell you that we're doing fine as long as the middle class is doing fine. Uh, they don't even talk about the issues of the poor. Uh, if you ask some people where we are, they'll say we're in the worst of times. You ask some where we are, they say we're in the best of times. If you ask some people, even in our community, I heard you say that you may not be about environmental injustice, but it is about you. Uh, they, they don't even talk about that. They would suggest that when you talk about black issues, there's only one or two voting rights and dealing with police violence. You know, I come from North Carolina, where, and I, my father worked in Warren County, where the term environmental racism was first coined by folks like Ben Chavis and the United Church of Christ uh, down in North Carolina. Uh, everybody back then thought everything was fine. Then all of a sudden people started getting cancer. Churches would have prayer meetings and healing services. My father and Leon White and others joined together and went out at night. They said, what's going on here? And they found out the trucks were coming in at night and dumping PCB in the ditches and in the water tables of the community. And they decided that in order for community get set free. Prayer was great. They needed to pray. They needed to preach. They needed to lay hands on people, but they needed to stop those trucks. And so where were they in that moment? They were in a moment where they literally had to say, we'll put our bodies in front of these trucks. We'll lay down in the street in front of these trucks if necessary. But what we're not going to do is let them continue to poison our people. The question, where are you, is always a political question. It helps you wrestle with the issue of people, power, and politics. Dr. King knew that. At the end, toward the end of his life, he raised the question, where do we go from here? Now, that, if there was a from here, there had to be a where they were. Where do we go from here? And when he wrote that book, he said that his dream had turned to a nightmare. Two years after the March on Washington, he had talked about a dream. Two years later, he said it had gone to a nightmare. Uh, the racism was on the crease, the injustice was on the increase. And he decided that where he had to go from there was he had to preach a sermon and lift up poverty, militarism, and racism as the three triune evils that had to be addressed in the country and in the world. There were human rights issues, not just civil rights issues. Because when he looked at the signs of the time and figured out where the, he was, where the nation was, then he understood what he had to do. So where are we? Where are we right now as we're on this this video conference and you all begin this conference. I want to talk in some ways and it's not, I hope it doesn't sound as morbid, but one writer says the most revolutionary thing you can do in a time of deceit is tell the truth. Is tell the truth. 
So I want to tell the truth. Where are we? We're in this country right now where poverty is the fourth leading cause of death. You wouldn't know it if you listen to the TV, listen to the news. You would think homicide. You would think other than but poverty is the fourth leading cause of death. Higher than homicide. Higher than uh, respiratory disease. Higher than diabetes. Higher than police violence. Poverty is the fourth leading cause of death. Poverty claims almost 800 deaths a day. Now think about it, when we got to 500 deaths a day during the pandemic, uh, we said we were in a crisis. Poverty kills 800 people a day, over nearly 200,000 a year of our brothers and sisters. And this is prior to COVID, not after COVID, not during COVID, but prior to COVID. Where are we? We have a, nearly 140 million people living in poverty or just one emergency away from economic ruin prior to COVID. 60% of black people live in poverty and or low wealth prior to COVID. 64% of Latinos, 38 million people, 64%, 60% black people, 24 million people, 40% of Asians, 8 million, 60% of indigenous, 2 million, 33% of white people, 66 million people who live in poverty. Uh, white, low wealth, 73 million uh, blacks. So black people are 40, in the percentage rise, 40% higher than whites, but in raw numbers, whites are 40 million more. Where are we? The life expectancy in the United States has been declining. We call ourselves the exceptional country, but it's been declining. And it was accelerated by COVID, but it was already declining before COVID. Average U.S. life expectancy was 76 years old. Is lowest since 1996, 76 years old. For Native Indigenous people, it dropped to 6.6 years to 65.2 years. For Black people, it dropped four years to 70.8. Life expectancy for Hispanics dropped 4.2 years to 77. Life expectancy for White people dropped 2.4 years to 76.4. Life expectancy for Asian dropped 2.1 to 83.5. <sighs> Mm. Two of the poorest states in the country, West Virginia and Mississippi, had the nation's lowest life expectancy, four to five years less than the national average. That's where we are. Where are we? Prior to the pandemic, 87 million people were uninsured or underinsured. Think about that. Before we ever hit the pandemic, 87 million people were uninsured or underinsured. And we hit the pandemic, and we as a nation still did not provide people universal health care. So 350,000 people died during COVID, not from COVID, but from the lack of health care. Where are we? In one year, we decided, okay, during COVID, we'll, we'll raise the child income tax credit. And we lifted 3.7 million children above the poverty line. 1.37 million white children, 700,000 black 1.3 Hispanic, 1.63,000 Asian. Then when child tax credit ended, we picked them up for a little while, then we dropped it right down in 2021, and now over 3.5 million children were pushed right back into poverty. How cruel is that? To lift folk up for a year and then drop them right back into poverty. In 2022, we expanded SNAP benefits in the midst of the pandemic, reached over 42 million families, and prevented 850,000 instances of food insufficiency. 
But now we're reducing those SNAP benefits, reducing them, taking it back. And it's hurting people all over the country, thousands upon thousands and thousands upon thousands of people. Where are we? Right now, we live in this country and nearly over 50 million people, 52 million persons, work every day for less than a living wage of $15 an hour. In other words, they work at poverty wages. Dr. King used to call it slave wages in some sense. You know what that means? That means 47% of black workers work for less than a living wage, work for low wages every day for less than $15 an hour. 48% of Latinos, 48% of Latinos, 30% of white workers, 40% of low-wage workers are women. And most of the, many of these low-wage workers, guess what? They were also essential workers. So we during the pandemic, we said, you are low-wage, but you're essential, so you got to work. But you're not essential enough for us to pay you a living wage because it was during the pandemic that we had the chance to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, and 49 Republicans and two Democrats said no to over 50 million people. The truth is the average hourly wage that a full-time worker requires to afford a modest two-bedroom apartment today is $25 an hour, $25 an hour. Did you know that at the March on Washington, the March on Washington, we talk about it being a black march. It really wasn't. It was a march for jobs and freedom. And the first agenda item for the March on Washington was to raise the minimum wage by 75%. And if they had and indexed it with inflation, we, the minimum wage would be about $17 an hour today. A few weeks ago, we had a march on Washington, and that was hardly mentioned. Nobody talked about the original agenda. We can't keep having nostalgic events and, 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 and not remembering where we were then and where we are now and where we have not gotten to yet, where we've not come to yet. 60 years later, we still don't have a that minimum wage, living wage that the March on Washington talked about. 60 years later, we don't have that full employment that the marchers want or fully funded public education or fully expanded Labor Standards Act. You see, we have to remember things were more than just gatherings for us to come together and more than just about uh, Black issues, but about issues that face humanity. It's race and class, never race alone or class alone. It's race and class. Where are we? Right now, I'm talking to you, 8 million to 11 million people are at risk of homelessness. 34 million people in this country right now are facing food insecurity. Right now. There's 60 million adults with disabilities in the country right now, 26%, are living below the poverty line. I, I disabled brothers and sisters, whether they be veterans or otherwise, living before, below the poverty line. And by the way, our country says that you're not poor if you make $12,000 a year, really. If you're a family of four and you make a little over $20,000 a year, you're not poor. But that, that way of measuring poverty is so outdated. It was bad when it was first implemented. And it's even worse now because it does not allow us to answer the question truthfully. Where are we? If you use the federal government's poverty measurement, they say it's only 39 million poor people in this country. But when you actually use a model that most academies are saying we have to use, it's, a, it's nearly 140 million people living in poverty and low wealth. Where are we? Student debt now makes up 44 million households. Where are we? Dr. Davis, 100 million people. Americans struggle with medical debt. That's why you got to be in this conference this week. That's why you're here. We're not here to play. This is not 
just coming to a conference and, you know, just to see one another, virtually or otherwise. It is to raise the question of where, because if we don't know where we are, then we don't even know the kind of organizing of people and power and politics that we need to engage. Where are we? 119 rural hospitals have been closed in 41 states since 2010. Think about that. Rather than opening more hospitals, rather than making a health more available to people, we've closed 119 hospitals. Many of them are closed in states that refuse to expand Medicaid, what they call Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And so hospitals are closed. More than 450 rural hospitals are at risk of being closed right now. And 104 million people were uninsured or underinsured. If you really look at it, even more than that 87 million when we went into COVID, when you add uninsured as well. And the United States has the worst ranking public health outcomes, including the average life expectancy, is at its lowest point. Listen, where are we? The United States is the only of the 25 wealthiest countries that does not offer some form of universal health care. That's where we are. And because of that, during COVID, you know, COVID really didn't kill a lot of people. Well, it did kill a lot of people. But what a lot of people died from, one data told us that poor people died at a rate four to five times higher during COVID because of the way we delivered services. In other words, COVID didn't discriminate, but we did in the way in which we delivered services and, and health care and opportunities for vaccines to the poorest community so that poor people were the brunt. The wealthy got the money. 68% of all COVID money went to corporations that we made more billionaires during COVID. It really shameful the number of people that made billionaires and the number of people that went into poverty. You know, I know one family in Mississippi where a young lady lost 25 members of her family within a 30-mile radius, primarily because Mississippi refused to expand health care and they could not get treatment. And my own family down in eastern North Carolina, one of my family's lost 38 members in our family, 38 members. And the hospital down there is closed. People didn't have access. People were scared to go. This is where we are. Oh, yes, I hope you're willing to hear this. Alongside poverty and low wealth and debt, we also have this issue of, of environmental injustice, environmental devastation, ecological devastation. Right? So we say that we have these issues that are interlocking, systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism, and they all connect together. Did you know as an expansion of oil and fossil fuel infrastructure has already led to more than 5,000 significant oil and gas leaks or ruptures in the United States pipeline? More than 2,400 oil spills in the United States water, over 1,100 coal ash ponds, all of which are disproportionately approximated poor communities. I was in a community that was a black and white community, uh, a poor community where they had a coal ash pond near it. And one of the ladies got up and testified and said, I probably won't be here next year because I'm exhibiting every medical condition they say is connected to coal ash. And yet they tell us it's okay, you know, to have a little coal ash in your water. We told politicians, if coal ash is good in water, why don't you put it in your drinking water and drink it then? They know it's not good. And, and in this particular community, they were trying to pit black and white communities against one another when they were all suffering from this poisoning through coal ash in their pond. 
that night our movement developed a song says somebody's hurting our brothers and sisters and it's gone on far too long and we won't be silent anymore black communities are exposed because of residential segregation you heard dr uh, i say he talked about um uh, redlining redlining is as you know is when they put a red line around certain communities and they refuse to lend in those communities for houses and things that would uplift the community now they'll lend you for a car or stereo system or something like that, but not for a house or for a business. Because of residential segregation, black communities, Latino communities, Native American communities are especially exposed to ecological devastation. Right now in Arizona, out in the Apache lands, uh, there's an attempt to destroy the Apache peoples uh, on Mount Sinai, their, their Mecca. The place where they honor their, their religious beginnings, all because of a multinational country wants to come in on those tribal lands and dig down for 2% of what they drew out and pull up from the ground that they're going to use as a special um, mineral. But, it, but doing it is going to poison the water table. Where are we? Tens of millions of Americans cannot afford access to clean water. I often say, People can get up every morning and buy unleaded gas and cannot buy unleaded water. 44 million people are living with water systems that violated the Safe Drinking Water Act. And approximately 540,000 households lack access to complete plumbing. And Native American households are more likely to face water access issues than any other household. My brothers and sisters, I, I know this is not, you know, just a happy speech. I know this is not where you just come in and say, oh, you know, everything is fine. I just jump three times and whatnot. But we have to tell the truth. There's too many lies going on. Jeremiah in his, in his writing said, everybody's lying. The, the politicians and the, the priests are not telling the truth. Where are we? We are in a social crisis. We are facing an impoverished democracy. We look at it through the lens of systemic racism and poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. And we have no time for foolishness, no time for uh, bumper sticker speeches, no time for just rabble around, no time for personality uh, or competitions. We must look at where we are, where we are, where we are. And we must look at it, I believe, not through the lens of, here's where the politics come in. It's not about Democrat and Republican. It's not about liberal versus conservative. It's not about trying to blame one, one president who recently won and recently been put out of office who has a funny color hat. It's not about that. This is about where are we about our morality as a nation. When we look at these issues and then put on top of these issues our claims, like the great claims of Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all persons are created equal, men, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights among which life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you listen at those stats, I just read those footnotes that does that look like liberty, pursuit of happiness? No. Or when we look at our Constitution, um, that guides us morally, even though it was written by flawed people, what does it say? That our whole purpose for existence as a democracy, as a government, it is not to act like an empire. You know, empires are greedy. Empires want dictatorial leadership. Empires always want to take. Empires want to push as many people as they can to the margin so that only a few have. That's how empires act like. But supposedly in our Constitution, 
we're supposed to be about establishing justice. What was just about what I just read? Those numbers, especially since every one of those things could be undone with just a few pieces of legislation. What's we supposed to ensure domestic tranquility? What, what you just heard me read does not ensure domestic tranquility. It ensures uh, domestic trauma. How does this promote the general welfare? It doesn't because we don't say the word welfare, but welfare is in our constitution. We're supposed to promote the general welfare of all people and, and provide for the common defense. Well, if millions, over 100 million people are uninsured or underinsured in the wealthiest nation in the world, if you get free health care just because you get elected to Congress, that's all you just have to get elected to Congress. But then once you get elected, you don't want the people who elected you to have the same kind of free health care you had. How is that providing for the common defense? And then in a nation where we spend so much time praying and, and, and putting our hands on Bibles and Qurans and other and Old Testament, uh, the Torah, when we swear ourselves into office, do we put our hands on those Bibles and swear ourselves to off, but then not even know what's in those Bibles? You know, you can pray P-R-A-Y at the beginning of a legislative session and then pray P-R-E-Y on all the people who are depending on you to pass policies that ensure equality and justice. You know, our deepest religious tomorrow says love should be first, grace should be first, mercy should be first. But how is it merciful and graceful for 50 million people that work every day for less than a living wage? The wealthiest nation. How is it how is it grace feel and love feel when you can simply say, if you know somebody's pocketbook and how much they make, you can almost say that they're gonna be impacted by ecological devastation. Where are we? Where are we? We're in our commitment to our deepest moral values. The fact of the matter is we have to raise up movements now, not about politics per se in terms of Democrat, Republican, but but a moral movement, moral movement. They would tell us what we must do and what we must fight for. One of the things that we look at where we are right now, you know what we must fight for in this moment? We must fight for embracing a bold agenda to transform the economy away from climate chaos to a green renewable energy economy that prioritizes the poor and low wealth frontline communities. We have to fight for that. We have to fight for investing in a green infrastructure package that provides an equitable public transit, fixes roads and bridges, and ensures equitable and affordable housing, education, and care, and work, and access to broadband and electricity and water and sanitation and other public utilities. We don't need these things privatized. We need them to be promulgated to everybody. We need to expand public health infrastructure Build hospitals, not close them. Sustainable food production and distribution. We need to build out community-based institutions like libraries and fire stations and recreation facilities, not leave communities underserved. We must fight to dramatically curtail air, water, and land and climate pollution. We must create resilient jobs to help communities prepare for and respond for climate realities disasters. And those in the poorest communities ought to get the jobs first. Those who are going to be impacted the most by climate uh, ecological devastation should get the jobs first to help us prepare for it. And we must raise the minimum wage. We have not raised the minimum wage since 2009. It's only $7.25 now at $2.15 if you are a waiter or waitress. We must raise the minimum wage, guarantee the right to form unions, increase those, expand the minimum wage to $17 now, index it with inflation. We must expand unemployment insurances and ensure family and medical leave. How dare us 
not provide family medical leave even during COVID. We must, we have work to do, political work to do. This does not come. You cannot fix these issues one at a time by a church's providing for people or community. This, these are systemic changes. And we must implement a federal jobs guarantee to increase public investment and infrastructure in poor and low-income communities that prioritize green and socially beneficial industries, public health, public education, care, work, all these things. We must do it. We must fight for it now. We must challenge Democrats. We must challenge Republicans. We must challenge anybody. We must make sure these issues are a major part of the upcoming presidential. We cannot go through another presidential election and poverty is not at the center stage. The low income and, and ecological devastation are not centerpieces in the debate that people are at. If you want to serve this country, you want to serve the people where you, whether you stand on these issues, not as a Democrat, not as a Republican, not as left, not as right, but rooted in our deepest moral values. We've got to guarantee health care. We've got to guarantee universal health care. We've got to understand how this all connects. For instance, if you're concerned about ecological devastation, if you're concerned about where we're headed as a nation, if you're concerned about where we are headed in terms of living wages, if you're concerned about where we are in this country, you cannot be concerned about these things and then not be concerned about where we are in terms of voting rights. Because let me tell you, we have less, less voting rights today than we had in 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed. You said, well, what does that have to do with ecological devastation? What does that have to do with denial of health care? Because when you suppress the right to vote, voter suppression is a tool to make sure that extremists get elected. Dr. King said that in 1965. At the end of the Selma to Montgomery march, Dr. King said something. You know, we need to get past 1963 and get to the other speeches that Dr. King talked about. He said, listen, the greatest fear of the oligarchy. The oligarchy is all those that have greed and money and fossil fuel barons and all those folks. He said the greatest fear of the oligarchy is that the masses of poor and low wealth, black and white people, Latino, would come together and form a voting power block along with other moral agents and advocates that could fundamentally reshape the economical architecture of the nation. So voter suppression, all of the ways to pass voter suppression laws are not just to block black people, but to block the possibility of fusion coalitions, people coming together across all these different racial lines who are poor and low wealth, who believe in a moral society. Voter suppression, whether it's redistricting, whether it's trying to cut same-day registration or early voting, over you know hundreds and hundreds of bills have been pushed since the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013, and no longer do we have something called pre-clearance where certain states had to pre-clear what they were passing to make sure that what they were passing was not suppressive. Ever since then, we've seen an onslaught of voter suppression because the great fear of the greedy, of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, of the fossil fuel industry, of those in pharmaceutical, those in healthcare, is that people will come together. That's why it, the Chamber of Commerce was the ones behind pushing Democrats and Republicans, 49 Democrats and um, 49 Republicans and two Democrats, also blocked passing the Voting Rights Act and living wages. Now, why is the Chamber of Commerce supporting them for that? The fear, the fear of the people being able to form a voting bloc that can fundamentally reshape the economic architecture. And so as I close, the question we also have to face in this moment 
He said, every time you deal these issues, you heard me list what the problems were, where we are, and what we need to be fighting for. Actually, if we could pass about eight pieces of legislation, we could deal with all of these issues. You know, I was speaking recently to the special rubber of poverty and the world poverty in the country at the United Nations a few years ago. And he said, Bob, there are three lies when it comes to environmental issues and poverty that, that just we just need to make people stop telling. Number one is we don't have the resources. He said, that's a lie. We have plenty of resources. They're just all bottled up to just a few. He said, the lie that we don't know what to do. We, we do know what to do. We right now, we know exactly what to do in every piece of legislation that needs to be passed. He said, but the bigger lie is that these are not moral issues. These are these are marginal issues. He said, that's a lie. Not only are they not marginal because they're affecting hundreds of millions of people, but they are moral issues. And to not address them are violations of our fundamental, who we claim we are. Now, Joseph Sticklitz, who's an economist, Nobel Peace Prize, now he raises one thing, and I'll close here. He says, the movement has got to make sure that the right question is asked. He says, whenever we engage these issues about poverty, minimum wage, health care, he says, the wrong question is, how much will it cost us to fix it? Y'all notice how that always comes up. Well, we have to raise tax money. He says, this is the wrong question. He's a Nobel Peace Prize economist. He said, the question we must push is, how much will it cost us not to fix it? How much will it cost us to leave environmental devastation unchallenged, denial of health care unfixed, living wages unchanged, hospitals unbuilt, infrastructure unprovided? How much does it cost more for the nation to keep poverty alive than to end it? It costs more to have low wages than to end it. It costs more to not fix our water systems and to not address ecological. It will cost us more financially, and it will cost us our lives, and it will cost us this democracy because this democracy cannot continue to stand the levels of inequality. Now, the levels of inequality in this country are greater than they were in the Great Depression. And this is why we have to have a movement. This is why I want you to hear the power that we have, the power that poor low wealth people have. Do you know right now, poor and low wealth people make up 30% of the electorate in this country and 40 over 40% in battleground states? Did you know that there's not a state in this country where if just 15 to 20% of poor and low wealth people of all races, creeds, and colors would come together and vote an agenda for their uplift and the uplift of the nation, they could determine every office holder in this country? Do you know poor white people really don't vote against their own interests? That's not, that's a lie we've been told. That most poor white people, like poor black people, they don't vote. They've been so turned off. Nobody says the word poverty. Nobody goes to their communities. All we hear in our politics is middle class and wealthy. But when poor and low wealth people do vote, according to the data, we have a study called Waking the Sleeping Giant. It shows that when poor and low wealth people do vote, they tend to vote progressive, wherever they are. If they make under $50,000 a year. There wasn't poor and low wealth people that tried to create an insurrection. Those were most upper income people. Poor low wealth people were too hard trying to eat, trying to keep the lights on because they know if the lights go off, we all black in the dark. If the child can't eat, the child doesn't, some of them growl black or growl white, it growls hunger. But right now we've done a study and it, and it shows that it would only take 1% of poor low wealth people in Michigan to come together to decide who's the governor's there and who's the legislator, who's the president and what they do. 19% in North Carolina. Only 3% in Florida where there are 9 billion poor low wealth people. 
Only 12% in South Carolina, 8% in Georgia. All over this country, God has now fixed it so that the stones that the builders rejected can now be the chief cornerstone in building a new reality. That's why we must mobilize. That's why in the Poor People's Campaign this coming February, we, we hope you'll join with us. We're going to have mass simultaneous meetings at 30 state capitals where state capital politicians are, written, are not addressing these issues and instead are trying to focus us on culture wars that divide, destroy, and deflect because they don't want to deal with these issues. Well, we want to put thousands of people in front of every state capital as a launching of a massive campaign to mobilize poor low-wealth voters that make up now 40% of the electorate in battleground states. And then next June 15th of next year, a mass poor people's low-wage workers a mass assembly where we'll focus on poverty and ecological devastation, denial of health care, poor low wealth people, religious groups, advocates, all coming together on Pennsylvania Avenue to make our declaration we will not accept this, we cannot accept this anymore, and then use the entire summer to mobilize and push out and register to vote and also lay out an agenda in the first 50 days of, of a new elected. If our votes turn out and people get elected because of them in the first 50 days of the Congress, we expect you to deal with living wages and health care and ecological devastation. Not, not 100 days, not 200 days, because our votes will not be support. They will be demands. This is what we must do. I know it not only philosophically. I know it not only because I know the data. I know it because as I go around the country, I hear people saying it. Listen, a lady named Terry Blanton, she's a white woman. She came to an event we had in Ohio. She had blunt bangs and a square jaw. She introduced herself to the crowd as somebody who wasn't well-educated, but had become self-educated by necessity. And then she grabbed the hand of a black Muslim sister from Ohio, and they came to the mic together. Terry had lived her whole life in the mountains of Kentucky. The advances, grandparents left up in Ohio. Terry knew hillbilly culture, but she explained how she refused to see her people and her place in the ways that she was taught to see it. She knew, Terry said, that she had to link up with other people. In some ways early in her life, she was taught not to see her common humanity with black people and brown people. But as she held the hands of this tall black Muslim sister, she said that um, when her kids had to walk across coal muck in the roads to get to their school and coal pollution, she recognized it wasn't black folk or Latino folk had done that but people right in our own community, politicians that had got in collusion with the wealthy and didn't care about folk like Terry and her pure hillbilly family. Terry called the coal company and told them they need to come clean up their mess. An employee on the other end suggested that she should just get used to it because she lived in a coal community, and that's the best she could expect. Terry said, I don't live in a coal community. I live in a human community. She said, it ain't like there are fields full of coal up here. Y'all can just walk through and pick it up. She says, I live in a mountain community that's being destroyed by your coal mine. And we could have other opportunities, but you don't want that to happen. She's, that's what she said to the employer. And then she said, and I'm not going to let some corporation try to make money anymore off of defining my community, not as a community of people, but as a coal company community. And over the past decade, she's been standing up to coal corporations. She's been building she came to Cleveland that evening when we had gathered people together with every race, creed, and color to challenge people, challenge people to join this movement. She joined the Poor People's Campaign. She committed to working on all the interlocking industries because she saw how they connected. She understood that the same people that were blocking voting rights 
while also blocking people's rights and blocking union rights and supporting these coal companies that were destroying her community. She understood that the coal miners were getting ripped off too because the companies weren't protecting them. They were lying to them. The politicians were saying they were going to protect their jobs. They weren't really protecting their jobs because every time they could, they'd get some form of animation to take their jobs away from them. And what the coal miners really wanted was to be retooled to another job, to ecologically safe jobs, if you will. But Terry also came to say it's time for us to get together. She looked around that cathedral that night. It was packed and it was full of poor people of every race, creed, of color, from what we call from the hood to the holler. And Terry, in all of her hillbilly slang, holding the hand of that tall African-American Muslim woman, said, my fantasy has always been, how can we get all these people together? How can we get all these people together? And what a world we could make if we could all get together. The Muslim sister said, Assalamu alaikum, you right, my dear sister, we're going to get together. And then somebody else came up and said, we're going to get together. And then somebody who was gay came up and said, we're going to get together. And then somebody who was Latino came up and said, we're going to get together. And on and on and before we knew it, the whole the altar of the church was filled with people who had been taught that they were enemies, who found that they were not enemies. They were the stones that the builders rejected who now in this moment of history, where are we? At a place in history where the stones that the builders rejected can be the cornerstone of building a more just and wholesome world and democracy. We've got the moral authority. We have the votes. Let's organize it. Let's do it. So that when generations yet unborn call our names, they will declare we did not stand down, but we stood up, we came together, and we made a better world. And we did not succumb to the greed, the lies, the wrong, and the injustices. My fantasy, like the Terry, is that we all get together. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Barber. Thanks for setting us up today. I, I learned a lot. You, you hit a lot of different points. Talked about people, power, and politics. Talked about poverty a lot, everybody. Talked about the intersectionality of these issues, COVID, and the impacts, but the access to infrastructure, right? The access to resources. Uh, some folks don't have access because of poverty. And so how do we address the environmental injustice? How do we address the water injustices? How do we address you know, the injustices of not having access to healthy food, healthy housing, healthy transportation? We have to address economic inequality. We have to address poverty. As Reverend said, we have to create opportunity. We have to create opportunity. So thank you, Reverend Barber, for that, that rousing keynote and get us open on the right foot for this symposium. I want to ask your person to go to um, Repairs of the Breach website and then they'll lead you to PPC. Third, there's a third reconstruction agenda. I didn't get on all, but we actually put together an agenda called Ending Poverty and Low Wealth, Third Reconstruction. And it shows that we could take 22 steps and this would be dealt with. We, you know, people keep acting like it's so insurmountable. In fact, you know, one piece of legislation, $15, would have lifted 47 million people out of poverty and 41% of black folk out of poverty with just one piece of legislation. But too often, we don't even see those kinds of legislation as a part of civil rights, as a part of um, of the movement in the whole. You know, we get stuck on one or two things. 
This is not insurmountable. I want your listeners, students to understand we have more power. And lastly, check the language because folk lie to us to keep us divided, just like that story about poor white folk. I hear everywhere I go. I decided to go study because I, I get tired of people saying stuff. I have to have a footnote and some empirical data. And the data shows that actually, that actually is not true. Now, I'm not saying that people don't vote against their own interests. Some black people do that. But when the suggestion that we have these, this, that our enemies are just poor, low-wealth white folk, Dr. King recognized in 68, that was not the case then. The issue is building, and you don't have to supplant race and the critique of race in order to bring in class. You expand race, but you never back away from it. I talk the same way in the hills of Kentucky that I talk in Alabama, Dr. Wilkes. Same way, same issue. And most of the time when I finish, folks get up and say, we've been fooled, haven't we? I say, yep, that's the point. Now what are we going to do about it? So yes, thank you so much for this powerful conference. Thank you. I hope sometime to actually be in person and come with you. I just love what you all are doing. And if there's any questions I didn't get to, people can send it to reachrepairs.org. And I'd be glad and honored to do anything I can to answer them. No, thank you, Reverend Barber. I, I know I appreciate your you telling the audience about your experiences growing up in North Carolina with the EJ movement with Warren County. We did have a 30th anniversary celebration with Dolly Burwell and Charles Lee and a few oh, yeah. other folks at last year's symposium. The reason why we have the symposium actually in this month now, we moved to September, to honor the the folks who fought for the PCB landfill, you know, in Athens, North Carolina. You know, they really recognize the, the, one of the birthplaces of the EJ movement, multiple birthplaces, but one of the primary birthplaces of the EJ movement, right? And, you know, and also, as you know, the North Carolina EJ movement has their annual uh, summit down in Tillery at Bricks. That's and right. I've, I've seen your, your daughter and your son there at the center in, in Bricks. So, I really appreciate you being here today and making those connections uh, between the civil rights movement, you know, what happened in Warren County, and also, again, the moral movement. We got to bring people together and don't let, you know, as you just said, don't let the people divide us, right? So how do you build bridges and talk about our shared humanity, right, and our shared issue? This is My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow in their communities. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Dr. Wilson, out. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at ceej.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review.